Just a small warning, I am not going to be discussing geopolitical situations. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I would have enjoyed it. Anyway, it's the end of our series of Isaiah, and I was going to start by saying, well, I hope you've all enjoyed it. But on reflection, I think the word interesting might be better placed. Then I thought I'd better look up interesting and see what words are similar. Well, the dictionary suggests 20. Well, let's see how they do in describing our Isaiah series. Our first word is alluring. I don't think so. Amusing? Definitely not. Attractive? No. Compelling? Yes. Curious? Not sure. Delightful? No. Engaging? Yes. Exotic? Well, that is strange. <laughs> Fascinating? Yeah, absolutely. Impressive? Of course. Intriguing? Yes. Lovely? Pleasing? Not sure. Provocative? Definitely. Readable? Pretty hard, actually. Refreshing? Well, only today in chapter 12. Simulating? Yes. Striking? Yes. Thought-provoking? Hugely. Unusual? Well, I have to say it is a bit. Well, I know it's a bit trivial, but in a way, it sums up Isaiah quite well. It is full of contrasts, extremes of good and bad, and, of course, predictions. It's not a comfortable read, and there are very few commentaries that cover our section. Whether we like it or not, the message of Isaiah is harsh, but justifiably so. It's about a nation chosen by God to be his special people, to be a shining example, but as it turns out, are never satisfied. Do not follow his laws and go out of their ways to be just about as bad as everyone else. Time after time, God gives them opportunity to change their behavior, but to no avail. And each time, he has to escalate the level of punishment inflicted on them. But does it make a difference? Unfortunately not. In the end, God decides enough is enough, and they are all but wiped out. Many make comparisons with what's going on around the world today, with wars breaking out everywhere and extreme violence seen as the only solution. Not surprisingly, little is achieved apart from the hideous slaughter of the innocents. And in the end, the warring parties have to negotiate. But that's the secular world, an example of man's inhumanity to man. God's behavior is not about personal, political, territorial gain, or imposing our values and culture on that of someone else. God's aim is that we should all live in harmony, where everyone is looked after, and where we can thank him for providing for us. Because sin entered the world, it's not that simple. We are all human, we slip up, and consequently, we need to be brought back in line. But with our God, there's always hope and a second chance. On this aspect, Isaiah is also an inspiration, 
because he pretty much maps out the future, the coming of Christ and the new covenant, Jesus Christ, saving us by dying for our sins. I'm pleased to say that we're ending our series on a positive note. <laughs> it could have been curtains for everybody, but it wasn't. In gratefulness, Isaiah writes a lovely song of praise to the Lord, thanking him for our salvation. So I'll just start with a little prayer. Father God, please make this your word and not mine. Please help us to hear what you have to say. I pray that today you have a special message for each and every one of us and that we would go away feeling fulfilled by your word. Thank you. Amen. Well, as it's the end of this series, I'm going to start with a little bit of context, um, go back over a little bit of the nine of the ten chapters to where we start today. So I'm going to start with the people of Israel. Well, our story starts with the Jews in slavery in Egypt. God uses Moses to rescue them. They cross the Red Sea, disobey God, and as a result, spend 40 years in the wilderness. Finally, God takes them into Canaan. Goal achieved, you would think, the promised land and where they all live happily ever after. Unfortunately not. They complain they were better off in Egypt. Even though God meets all their needs, smites their enemies, they worship idols and continue to generally disobey. But at no point does God give up on them because he has a purpose for them. He's chosen them as his own people. He wants them to stand out and become a beacon for other tribes and peoples. His hope is that their example will draw other nations to God's way. Well, as we've seen in our mini-series, they didn't. They had peace and prosperity, but thought this was by their own efforts. They were full of pride, indulgent and self-important. It was everyone for themselves. They did not even look out for their own kind. The poor were oppressed and justice, injustice was common. Dave made the point in his talk, God judges society by how it treats its weakest members. They were religious, but it was ritualistic. Worship was simply a routine and an opportunity to look important. And finally, they were cold towards God. They had drifted away and worshipped pagan idols. As a charge, street, charge sheet, it goes it's pretty appalling, and sadly, too many parallels with the world we live in today. To teach his people a lesson, God used the smaller surrounding tribes to discipline them. But they still would not change their ways. In fact, they became more like their enemies. Worse still, Israel, the northern ten tribes, had formed an alliance with the Syrians against the two tribes of Judah. So what to do? Our God yet again wanted his people to repent. Repeatedly, he gave them the opportunity, but each time they went back to their own wicked ways. Finally, God sends in the prophets, Amos to Israel and Isaiah to Judah 
to try and persuade them, but also to tell them what will be the consequences of their behavior if they do not change. Isaiah was born into privilege, but his life changed when he had a vision in the temple. Immediately, he knew he'd been commissioned to preach, but he also knew at that time that the people were not going to listen to him. As I mentioned before, Isaiah is really not an easy read. Its structure is quite erratic. There's no clear outline or running order, and it's not easy to follow. So why then is it important for us? Essentially, it's the Bible in miniature. Chapters 1 to 39 have the atmosphere of the Old Testament and 40 to 66, that of the New. This ties up with the 39 books of Old Testament and 26 in the New. Well, as an aside, I was, as I was writing this, I had a really silly thought. Have you ever wondered how Isaiah knew there would be 26 books in the New Testament? No, I don't. David Pawson puts it like this. The first part, chapters 1 to 39, is about the disease and is negative, And 40 to 66 is about the cure. It is positive and about the future. Our series started with some pretty awful stuff. God decides that Israel has gone too far and is not redeemable. He empowers the Assyrians who wipe them out. No survivors. The Assyrians themselves go too far and in turn they're also wiped out. It's a really harsh message. There are no buts or maybes. If you keep disobeying God, doing your own thing because you only you know what is right, you will die, if not on earth, certainly in the fires of hell. I'm sorry if that's a really stark message, but that's how it is. Unfortunately, in some Christian circles in this age of woke, it's a message that is avoided as it might hurt our sensibilities or put people off coming to church. But it is here in the Bible, in Isaiah, and it needs to be said. Believe and do God's will, or face his awesome powers. Israel did not take the words of the prophets seriously, and as a result, fell foul of God's wrath. Judah was not quite as bad maybe eight, nine out of ten on the wickedness scale. And Matt makes the point in his preach on Isaiah 6, the Lord knows they, Judah, ha are too far gone or they would have behaved differently. While their fate is not good, it is different. Yes, a lot of them are wiped out by the Babylonians, but not all. Some of those who are taken to the city of Babylon will return in the future. At the end of ten chapters of misery, we finally get some good news. <laughs> Although God has inflicted the most awesome punishment on the Israelites, they have not entirely been wiped out. And there is promise of the future. 
Isaiah knows it could have been worse and clearly feels the need to say thanks to the Lord for his mercy. Chapter 11 paints a picture where a king, Jesus, will establish his kingdom of peace and Israel will be reclaimed and reunited. It makes the point that God will never break his covenant, first made with Abraham. It speaks of the reign of the Messiah as king over all the earth. Some consider it could apply to day's time, but Isaiah is talking about heaven, unity, and all peoples being equal. He is giving us an idea of what society would look like under God's rule. There is some symbolism here. The stump that grew out, we are told, was oak, which only grows in the south, whereas in the north they have cedar trees. And those of you gardeners will know that if you cut oak right down at the bottom, it will sprout. But if you cut cedar, which is a conifer, like a, those dreadful Leylandi things, it will not spring up wonders. Matt in chapter 9 and Mike in, verse, in chapter 10 spoke of this and that the stump is the holy seed and the remnant is Christ. The use of branch is interesting as, it, as in Hebrew it is Nazareth where Jesus was born. And branch is also used by Jeremiah in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, to describe Jesus. There Jeremiah says, Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honour and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. What a wonderful thought and promise that is. And why wouldn't you want to sing songs of praise if you've been redeemed? This is why chapter 12 is a hymn of praise, like a psalm to the Lord. It's all about our salvation, rejoicing, and being grateful. I have to say, when I first looked at chapter 12, read it and read it again, I was bewildered um, and not quite sure what to make of it. Of course, it's nice to end a series on a positive with a lovely song of praise, but why did Isaiah include it at this point? Commentaries suggest that Isaiah wants to reassure the inhabitants of Jus Jerusalem by sharing his confidence, his faith in the Lord, so that it would not be forgotten. In fact, they will have a future in spite of their human frailties. It is a reminder of God's unending mercy and salvation. Isaiah wants us to shout out our eternal gratitude. It portrays a f the freedom we receive from fear and the deep joy that spreads through our being when we accept God's grace and love. Our passage is pretty short. It's just six verses, and we're going to look at this in three parts. The first part 
is verses 1 to 2 and is praise for God's mercy. And I'll read those and we'll take a look. In that day you will sing, I will praise you, O Lord. You were angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. The first thing to say is that these two verses are personal and intended to be sung by an individual, quite possibly by those forcibly taken to Babylon to give them hope and to remember their God as they toil in forced exile. The end of verse 2 says, He has given me victory. And that is a reference to Exodus. Refers back to the deliverance from Egypt and is a timely reminder that earthly powers cannot defeat the power of God. The word Lord is in capitals and has special meaning that God uses to refer to the covenant between himself and his people. Under the old covenant, Sins were remembered over and over again, year by year. But Isaiah is speaking of the new covenant, where forgiveness is the unique blessing of absolute forgiveness on the cross by Jesus. People make a covenant when they seriously agree to do things for each other. In God's covenant, he agreed to love his people and he agreed to protect them. In return... The people agreed to love and obey him. Jeremiah makes an interesting point. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The new covenant is no longer about following a set of rules. It is about hearts and minds. It is personal. It is having a one-to-one relationship with God. Moving on to verse 3, the wells of salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In its historical setting, this verse probably refers to a ritual activity, most notably during the Feast of Tabernacles. Paints a metaphorical picture of drawing water from the wells of salvation. And it signifies an act of experiencing God's salvation with joy, similar to a thirst being quenched by a thirsting drink that is satisfying. The use of wells, the plural, implies that it's an abundant supply and signifies that God's salvation will never run out. Another aside, the name Isaiah means salvation of God. And so it's really no surprise that Isaiah Isaiah talks about salvation more than any other prophet. And moving on to our final two verses, four and six, four to six, which is about thanksgiving and proclamation. And starting at verse four. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all 
earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. We know this is a communal song, as the word you and the verbs are plural. No longer is there a lone voice singing out against fear, as though whistling in the dark. But now we have a chorus of voices offering praise for all that the Lord has done. It's much easier to trust and not be afraid when a whole community joins together. And this has echoes of 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, and so it is with Christ, one body, many parts. Verse 4 says, make mention of his name. And here we have a reminder of past experiences of God. And verse 5, for he has done excellent thing. We're being told how God has already taken actions for their benefit. When a person accepts Jesus, God's anger is turned away. And God becomes that person's salvation. It is no surprise then that when you're filled with joy, you would want to proclaim God's work in his or in your life. For a while, I wasn't a Christian. Not long after our son became a Christian, Wendy Han and I did the Alpha course. The last part, the Holy Spirit weekend, is really special. My personal Holy Spirit experience was seeing Jesus' face on the cross, something I was previously very skeptical and critical about. And it was followed by an immense joy and feeling of a large burden being lifted. And I still see that image. I didn't sing out aloud, which is probably just as well and one of the many reasons why I'm a drummer and not a singer. Thank you, guys. <laughs> um, but I did have this incredible urge to read his word. And over the next month, read the whole of the New Testament whilst traveling to work. And I just wonder if you've been on the Alpha course and you've had that experience. Do you remember how you felt when the hands were laid on you and the Holy Spirit passed through? If you've not experienced that, please do come and speak to one of us afterwards and sign up for an Alpha course. So th there are six key messages from the, the, the passage I, I want to talk about. We'll organize one if it isn't there. <laughs> we'll improvise. Is that the Marines, isn't it? Improvise, yeah. First key, key message is understanding God's saving grace. Grace is the living proof of God's promise to save his people from their suffering and hardship. Isaiah did not merely echo a future prophecy. He made a declaration of what was taking place now. God's salvation is not a one-time event. It's a continuous process in our lives, and it involves the release from our sins, our fears, our anxieties, Everything that keeps us from fully embracing the love of God. The 
The second point is that gratitude should be a spiritual discipline. Embracing gratitude deepens our relationship with God, allowing us to appreciate his love and mercy on our lives. In our lives. It reminds us to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we all have and everything we have comes from him. Sorry, I struggle a bit with my eyesight at the angle. Being grateful is something we need to do on a regular basis. Third point, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is more than simple happiness. It's a joy that springs from knowing God, being in a relationship with him and experiencing his salvation. It's a celebration of his goodness that doesn't diminish by life's incidents or challenges. Our rejoicing shouldn't be silent or reticent, but a loud declaration, a sharing of God's goodness with the world. When we rejoice, we call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, and make mention that his name is exalted. This is the call for every believer, to live lives so drenched in God's glory that our very existence becomes a testament to him. Fourth point, live in the reality of God's presence. When we live in God's presence, we need to know that he is close to us at all times. It's not just about seeking God in special spaces like church or on specific occasions like Christmas or Easter. It's recognizing that he is in our midst in every situation, whether it's suffering or in great success. My fifth point, God as our source of strength. The end of verse 2, Isaiah says, the Lord is my strength and song. The strength that comes from God is not transitory or uncertain, but constant and reliable. It's way beyond anything we could do, and it doesn't waver whatever the circumstances. For many years in my career, I was permanently employed. But then, not long after I became a Christian, I changed to work as, as a freelance consultant. I felt that I was being told to make this change and effectively engineered my leaving. I had no idea what I would do as I did not have work to go to. But for some strange reason, I did not fear because I felt this presence guiding me. Over the next couple of months, the situation changed. I had work and plenty of it. Sometime after that, I became a self-employed handyman and painter and decorator. Again, reliant on work coming in. I won't say it was easy, because it wasn't. Being self-employed in today's climate is hard, but over time, the work came in. Sometimes there were quiet periods, but interestingly, they seemed to coincide with something happening in our personal lives that we needed to do, often unexpectedly. After a while, it seemed to have a pattern to it. And over the course of each year, we managed okay. Looking back, 
I was probably more concerned and less at peace when I was fully employed in corporate world, but then I wasn't depending on the Lord to direct, support, and comfort me. If there is a moral, it is that life is full of uncertainties, but God's strength works as a refuge and establishes and enables us to sing and be joyful when we're overwhelmed with problems, issues, and hardship. It's a release. And the final point, we should be declaring God's deeds to the world. Demonstrating and telling people what God has done is a declaration of our faith. It shows his power and the impact he has had in our lives. As Christians, we're all called to bear witness, to go out and spread his word, and by doing so, convert unbelievers. This is not simply a nice-to-do but a call to action for all of us. Sharing our personal experiences of God's grace, mercy and love provides encouragement and hope to others. One of the most powerful ways is by sharing our testimonies in church to encourage others in their faith. In turn, it gives us the strength to share our experiences with non-Christians. Spreading the gospel and making disciples of all peoples and nations is a fundamental part of being a Christian. It needs to be part of our DNA. And just to conclude, Isaiah 12 is an overwhelming story of God's grace, love and salvation. It's a song of praise born out of a deep recognition of God's transformative power in our lives. It calls for us to embrace his salvation, to live in gratitude, and to find our strength in him. Throughout, we are reminded to recognize God's constant presence, to lean on his strength, and to actively declare his deeds to the world. It is just as relevant today as we progress on our own contemporary Christian journey. There is a really big difference between ignoring God and making mistakes. We all make mistakes. It is inevitable and we need to recognize that. It's what we do about them that matters. We are fortunate because we've been given an option. Christ died for our sins so that we might be saved. Salvation is a gift of God. It's freely given to all who ask for it. Simply believe and you will receive. Now, that really has to be something worth thanking and praise God for. As the band comes up, I'll close in prayer. It's definitely a plural band. Well, I'm going to cheat a bit. So I'm going to use um, the words from Romans 12, 1 to 2. And it came into my inbox from uh, a charity, and um, I thought it was really apt. From Tear Fund, I forgot. Big fan of Tear Fund. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father God, there is only one person who can save us, and that is you. Please be with us this week and use us as we are for the benefit of your kingdom. Amen.